Hello and welcome to The Gray Area, where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 102nd episode in a weekly series called Cypher This. Here with me is William B.J. Stallwood, co-founder of Cypher Prime. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, last week's episode was an interview with engineering consultant J Jerry Ellsworth of Technical Illusions, and today is Wednesday, August 7th. We're going to talk to William about music, games, as art, and Cypher Prime. So first question, what is your news of the week? What are you up to? Okay, so um, I guess the news of the week is that, um, so I guess about a year ago, um, now we had done a Kickstarter for one of our very first games, Auditorium, and we made the second version of the game. Um, that was the Kickstarter auditorium duet. And we've been having lots of issues with making the game. And I think this week was like our, our big progress week where we finally, uh, did some really cool stuff. So I've been working on a lot of menu stuff this week, which sounds kind of boring, but it's been really fun and exciting. And we also just announced this week about a new game that came out called Shimsham for, uh, the Leap Motion. Yes. I definitely want to talk to you about that. I saw the tweet a few hours ago. <laughs> Actually, when I saw the tweet, I thought that it was kind of a joke because of the thing that came after it. Let me see what it's called. What the Legend it? of the, Jazz Hands. Yes, the jazz, Legend of Jazz Hands. Shim Sham, The Legend of Jazz Hands. And I thought, well, Jazz Hands? And I looked it up, and it, it's a very cool game. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, Dane finally let me get away with something. He's really cool. <laughs> yeah. They did not say Spirit Fingers, so you're yes. okay. I wanted Spirit Fingers so bad. Did you really? Uh, yeah, well, the cool thing about the leap motion is, you know, you're holding your hands in the air and you're waving them around. So I actually tried to put spirit fingers in the game, and yeah, no the one copyright. liked that. I just thought it was funny, and no one else did. <laughs> nice. All right, well, let's start at the beginning. Obviously, you enjoy gaming. Did you play games as a childhood? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quite a bit of games. In fact, I have a Quake 3 tattoo in my right arm. Oh, I I very much was very, very into games, especially competitive games and FPSs, pretty much any FPS. Um, Quake 2 probably be my favorite. Okay. That, FPS, that's so, so. interesting because we'll talk about this too, I guess, but your games are so different. Like if you loved them as a child, I guess what inspired you to, did you want to like follow in their footsteps and create first-person shooters? No, not at all. I mean, I think Quake 2 is the, the most perfect first-person shooter ever made, and I'm not here to recreate the wheel. I want to make ah. my own games. And it's interesting because I'm our game designer and people always say that to me because I have such a a love for core gaming as well as just abstract stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, why is it so different from what we expect? And uh, I don't know, I guess those those are the gaps I see and I'm like really, you know, I'm a designer at heart and I just like doing different things. Talking about uh, your designer aspect, I did some research and came across your portfolio, I would assume maybe an older portfolio, which was oh. really beautifully designed. Uh, and it just had a lot of, I like the suitcase aspect, the way it opens up, and just the, the design of the web page itself is really neat. You have a lot of web developer you know, talents like HTML, uh, CSS, JavaScript, SQL, all of, all of these things. Uh, and it seemed like very graphic design oriented as well. So how did you end up morphing from sort of the design aspect into the gaming aspect? How did you marry the two of them? Oh, well, I'll start off because this is really funny, actually, that um, I was just talking to a whole bunch of my friends tonight about my portfolio because it is so outdated. That one you've seen is about 
six or seven years old. It's like the, it's like the portfolio that I graduated from with college, from college mm-hmm. uh, and hasn't been updated a single day since then. And, uh, I was, I'm ha- kind of at this, this problem right now where I actually kind of like that portfolio cause I think it's sort of clever with the box and everything, but mm-hmm. it's a flash website. And, uh, I don't think I made it terribly well and, you know, it's just completely outdated. So now I'm thinking about doing like a WordPress thing and I have just such a huge pain with it because it's going to be not as interesting, you know, kind of missing out on the design part. But yeah, anyway, I can see that. I mean, especially for someone that kind of builds it from scratch, I would imagine like you do. I would say that I, I don't know, but I can assume like the Cypher Prime website and uh, some of the things like they have the same, a similar style. Like I could see kind of the morphing from the portfolio page to like separate prime. Again, I'm guessing, I don't know if you created that page, but there's similarities in sort of like, uh, the feeling of it. Yeah. So the, um, I mean, there's a roundabout answer to this whole thing. And, uh, you know, we did make all those pages. Um, Dane and I both specialize in web development. That's kind of where we came from when we started cypher prime. Um, Basically, Dan and I had met at a party I was having for Smash Brothers, and uh, you know he showed me his portfolio. He took a he took a look at mine, and we were like, "Oh man, it'd be really cool to do stuff together." And one day, I just called him up and I was like, "I hate my, my job. Let's do stuff together." And he had already filed the paperwork for Cipher Prime, and then I jumped on as a partner with him. And uh, so he already had the name, and he just filed it the week before. And the thing was, let's make a web company. And so we started off, Cypher Prime was a web development studio. And Auditorium was this thing that we made kind of as our digital business card, if you will. Just this project to send prospective clients to be like, hey, this is the kind of work we can do. Like, we can do some really high-level stuff. And, um, you know, no one ever hired us. They just played the crap out of the video game. <laughs> the only reason we did a video game was, uh, you know, I love games so much. And I thought, like you know, when do you ever get to make a video game? Like, that's unheard of. But since it was a portfolio piece, you know, it was finally like, you know, it's okay that Dan and I spend a month, two months on this thing because, you it's know. research. After, yeah, it's research. And after the next couple of years, we're going to just be doing websites and we're going to hate ourselves. So let's have a little <laughs> bit of fun for a while. And then, you know, it turned into eight months, turned into a year. Now it's like four and a half years and we only make video games now and, I'm having all this pro, all these like, I don't know, issues with my portfolio because I don't really do web dev anymore, even though I can still do it. Um, and I'm still pretty fast at it. It's just not, it's not a love of mine anymore. Mm-hmm. Interesting how that works over time. Neat. It's very strange. <laughs> it's a weird way to get into video games. <laughs> I saw that you worked for PBS Kids Sprout. I just have to ask because that's like a huge thing around here. For, especially for little kids, like PBS Kids Sprout. It's so neat. What did you do for them? Um, so I, I was actually brought on by this uh, amazing woman, Annie Rex. Um, and she just kind of, I, I don't know what, I don't remember the origin story there, but I think it was like this Craigslist ad that I just, you know, sent this crazy email out of the blue. And I had gotten in a motorcycle accident um, the day of my my interview. And oh. I had gone in the interview um just completely bloody and scraped up. And uh, I had gotten in the accident maybe like 40 minutes before the interview. And I still went to the interview because I really wanted the job. And um, she basically hired me on the spot because I was willing to show up tattered, <laughs> tattered in rags. And she had already liked my work. 
And um, so I worked there with her for a couple months, and unfortunately, uh, she ended up leaving, I guess, after six months, and I just kind of followed her. But basically, I was her lackey, and she was the interactive director there. And then I was basically handling all the creative for the website. So, um, you know, Melanie from The Good Night Show and everything, if she started introducing a new show, I would talk to a local studio and make, the, you know, organize the website for that and how it was going to get done. And she would take the bids, and we just kind of worked as a team. Hmm. That's exciting. It's, it's something that I think a lot of people, you know, would look back and say, oh, I'm so proud to be part of, like, educating the children of our future. It was uh, really interesting for me, I think, because, uh, you know, in school and even before that, all the technology field I'd ever been in was really male-dominated. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Sprout, uh, there was only two guys within with 30 employees. Um, so it was really like, it was kind of, it, it definitely helped me grow because it was this environment that was so completely uh, new and strange to me. And also, you know, working with video and everything was really new and challenging. Talking about Cypher Prime before, you mentioned that Dane uh, had already had the company kind of beginning to, to put paperwork in for it. Why the name Cypher Prime? Everyone seems to focus on the fact that Cypher is spelled differently, but the name itself, what is the, the meaning behind that? Um, so I think it's Dane's kind of, it's Dane's play basically on binary. Um, you know, the Cypher is decode, but it also means, um, you know, zero and then prime is one and you know, it's kind of just his little like play on words for binary, which, you know, the whole computer aspect of it. Okay. Um, he's a lot more uh, technical than I am at heart. You know, while we're both technical people, he really like loves it. And I just want to ride my motorcycle into the sunset. So <laughs> what would you, what would you describe as like the duties of what you both do? How would you break up, you know, your expertise area and his expertise area? Um, there's actually just, there's a hell of a lot of overlap. Um, the, the only thing, I mean, we can pretty much do everything the other person can do at different skill levels, uh, except for the fact that I cannot make music, no matter how hard I try. Um, so he's, and he's just amazing at that, so uh, I'm never going to have that, unfortunately. <laughs> as long as you um, have one, right? Yeah, but I mean, the, the way it works is we both do business development. Um, I do kind of like the bigger deals and the structure and the strategy. And Dane does like all the day to day stuff, um, you know, keeping everything running. Um, so we're both doing that. And, you know, that's not a rule of thumb, you know, like he'll find a deal and, you know, we'll do that as well. So it kind of just goes in and out. I, I'm definitely like a lot more on the marketing side of things where, where the business development is concerned. Um, but then when it actually comes to game development, we've both been programming for a really long time. Uh, we both started before, we ever went to college. So, what, we're 29 now. 29 now, we both started at 13 years old. So, uh, so we've been programming a very long time um, with lots of different languages. And um, we had kind of a similar career path. We both went into web development. He went a little bit more into uh, front-end development, and I went a little bit more into back-end development. Um, but that's also kind of strange because I'm a much more visual person and he's definitely a much more data oriented person. So we were kind of doing maybe the disciplines that we should have made had, had reverse roles probably. Mm-hmm, I can uh, see that. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, there's just like a lot of overlap there and we do different things. Um, but when it comes down to it, you know, if we make a game, Dane's normally the guy who's going to be writing the editor for the game. And then I'm going to be that person who's using the editor to create the game and also doing all the front end of that. Like what's that going to look like? And, how it's going to feel and how it's going to react. And 
you know, how do we put this together? But at the same time, you know, for Shim Sham, you know, that was a game we made in three weeks for Leap Motion. And, you know, he had said at one point, like, it'd be really cool if it was jazz and everything was Art Deco. And I hate the whole Art Deco movement and was very much like, no. And then 10 minutes later, I was like, okay, I can do that. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, even though I'm cre- our, you know, creative director, you know, he, he kind of thrown out that idea and it was like, all right, you know what? I, I can work with that. Let's, let's do it. I want to talk about the ideas of game development, but I want to go through some of the more basic stuff and then we can argue the esoteric. Uh, so what is the atmosphere like? Because you guys definitely have a lot of community interaction. It seems very, you know, pro Philly based and sort of support for the community and also a certain kind of irreverent attitude, like in the office, that's really refreshing. How would you describe it working there? Um, I don't think, I mean, everyone at Cypher Prime, I would consider to be extremely tough. Um, Critique is harsh. It's mostly my fault because uh, I don't know how to control my mouth. But you know, <laughs> it's it's kind, of, it's kind of a problem sometimes. Uh, but it's like, also you really, suck. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, we, we were doing something today. We were working on this menu thing, and I was just like, "What the hell are you thinking? That's the worst thing I've ever seen. That is like probably the worst menu design I've ever thought of." And uh, you know, I was saying it to one of the other guys there. And it really wasn't the worst, you know, it was a very bipolar way to look at it and um, a complete overreaction. But at the same time, uh, completely a normal thing, you know, a very normal thing that any of us would have said to each other. And, um, you know, I think everyone there is really like strong willed and, you know, it, it wouldn't be weird for one employee to kind of slap another employee in the face jokingly. It's just very, uh, it's kind of love. Yeah, we're all kind of best friends, you know, not that we really started out that way, but uh, everyone at the office is is totally, you know, I would consider a really good friend of mine, uh, if not even closer than that at this point. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the general working atmosphere. And as far as, like, you know, Philadelphia and Cypher Prime, I'm, like, the biggest fanboy in the world for Philadelphia, and I just love video games way too much. So that's kind of my, my fault. Dev Knight sort of started... um my buddy Sean Pierre, uh, he also makes games. And it's kind of hard with all Prime to kind of hang out with my friends. So we organize this like running play date. Every Wednesday we're going to get together, we're going to play video games. But he also makes games. So some weekends, some weeks we'd end up making games as well. And then Keith Knives came and then Zenis started coming. And then next thing you know, now it's 30 people every week. And we've been doing it for over a year. And we're going to expand our space just so we can kind of accommodate more people uh, for Dev Night. And it's just kind of organically grown, and it didn't happen on purpose. Um, but I absolutely love it. I mean, just keep making sure it happens, I guess. Is it generally for people that are already, you know, fairly established as indie companies that kind of come and share ideas and collaborate? Or is it more for people that are just learning how to make things and they just kind of want to hang around professionals that know what they're doing and and basically build their own first game? Well, I'm not going to ever claim to be a professional at this. Um, Probably an amateur forever. But uh, no, I don't really care at all. I just want people to come and have a good time. I don't even care if people are interested in making games. If people just want to come and play games, that's totally fine, too. If people want to come and talk about art, that's totally applicable. If you want to come and write, like, come and write. I mean, uh, Phil Kahn comes every once in a while, maybe, you know, once a month, and he makes comics, and he sits down and writes and does comics. That's so cool. I mean, it's not 
it, it doesn't really matter. Video games is every goddamn medium in the world, so it's not like you're going to come in and do something that doesn't apply. You can come in and do needlework, and it's going to apply somehow. So, it's more of a creative space, you're saying, like, for people to yeah, come to share. If you're interested in, in creating something or playing with something that somebody's created or even helping somebody or even talking about the way things are created, you know, you're totally welcome. It can be anyone. And, uh, you know, we just welcome anyone. So it, it doesn't matter to me at all. And it doesn't really matter to anyone else. And a lot of the times, you know, a lot of guys, you know, a lot of the game developers who come every week who are doing lots of core development and working on their own games, they, they want to come and they want people to be able to play their games. And a lot of the times, you know, the other game developers are working on their games or trying to get people to play their games. And it really is actually just better if there's a lot more, you know, an eclectic vibe, because that way there's there to there's people there to play other people's games and people there to make music and listen to music. And, you know, there's somebody there to create that thing that somebody else can appreciate. Hmm. I like that. All right. Now on to the games. And speaking of your website and the games, I do love the, the blog uh, musings aspect where you can kind of get a feel for what's going on inside your heads as you're creating things, which is, is a good resource too, for people that want to you know, follow along and, and maybe get, a little bit deeper understanding of certain things that are already out. You seem to contribute that quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I'm really big on that. Um, I mean, I actually did a lot of teaching. Uh, I taught over at Philadelphia University for a while as well. And I just think that, you know, knowing something is okay, but teaching someone is really what you should be doing. Um, I'm definitely not one of those people who subscribe to that theory that, like, you know, teachers suck and they don't know what they're doing, you know. Mm-hmm. Teachers definitely do as well. So I don't know. I think it's important. It's extremely hard, and I'm definitely not the best writer on the team. Um, but, you know, I want to communicate and share my ideas too. So it's nice to have it all in one place. Usually, you know, developers will have, like, their own personal blog, or you'll have to search out different sites to, to, get, to get that kind of information. But to have it all, you know, on one page, different people contributing to different ideas is, is a really great organizational tool. Yeah, and we're also really trying to, um, Dan and I are both trying to kind of inspire everyone at our company to be doing this as well. The whole idea of post-morteming everything you do is just really important. And, you know, I like it when Andre talks about design. You know, he's not a designer. He, he didn't go to school for it. He's not trained in it. But at the same time, you know, he is in training for it because every day he's making video games at Cypher Prime. And he's being forced to do a lot of design-oriented tasks. So it's also really great when someone like him is writing an article on something because they haven't been doing it for 10 years, so their perspective is completely different. And sometimes when I say things to people, it's just, you know, it doesn't come out right. I can't even see from that vantage point anymore. But when he says things, um, you know, he's closer to them. And it, it just it's better because that way we're all saying things at different levels and helping each other all learn and communicate better. Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes things just get so busy that you need, like you said, a postmortem to look back on, oh, hey, I just did this. Let me take a second to think about, you know, what I've learned through the process and write that down because I'm sure that I'll be so busy in the next few weeks that I won't remember exactly what I did last week. <laughs> yeah, I've got, uh, speaking of postmortems, like, as postmortems, my next musing is about the postmortem for um, Shim Sham. So that one will be coming out probably next week, I think. But it's very long. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Shin Sham, the legend, legend of jazz hands. So what what is going on with that? Tell us, other than the Art Deco theme. Uh, I thought this was two-player, which was unusual for you guys. Is that so? It is straight two-player. I mean, it, it's kind of unusual 
um, for the Cypher Prime brand, I guess, if you're looking from the outside. Um, if you come to Dev Night a lot, you wouldn't think it was unusual at all because um, we do, you know, we do a game jam every single month. And both Andre and myself have been making one-on-one or two-on-two games for over a year now, every single week. So we've made like 40 one-on-one or two-person, two-versus-two games. Um, we're like, we're like obsessed. <laughs> Why do they not come out? Um, we just, we don't publish anything that we make for fun. We just kind of, it's, it's really sad, actually. We'll spend, you know, like two days of pure time, not even sleeping, um, and barely eating to make these games that the only other people who get to see them are the people who show up to dev night, which is normally like, you know, 30 people show up and eight people will play your game. And, uh, then we never bring it out again. It goes somewhere in a folder somewhere. And I don't know. I don't know why people don't see them. We're lazy. We just want to make stuff. We don't want to send it out. Making the website's a lot of work. Okay. But yeah, so Shim Shim, um, it is, a, so it is a, it's a one-on-one game. It's very one-on-one. There's no bot or anything like that. Um, I'd said earlier, it was kind of like a huge challenge for us. Leap Motion had come to us three months, three, three weeks, sorry, before the, the launch of their airspace store. And they were like, Hey, we would really like it if you guys could make an experience for us. Um, and it has to be a full gaming experience, something along the scale of pulse, which was uh, one of our hit iPad games. And we kind of looked at them like they were absolutely crazy and what development team in the world could do this. So obviously we, we said yes. And, um, we set out to make this thing. So it's really, it's a really interesting and weird game. And, uh, the way it works is that, uh, you both have your own color. Uh, you know, it's very cypher primey with the colors and everything. Um, and so say, say your color is blue, your character is a little circle and he rolls along the ground and, uh, you're down, basically on a top down view of a platformer and you have these little cubes. And what you do is you can, you have a left and right control. And basically what you're doing is you're rotating the world. And by rotating the world, uh, anything that's your color is having its gravity affected by that rotation. Uh-huh. So if you, it's, it's based off those games you played as a kid. If like you ever Marble played Marble Madness. Those, exactly. So if you ever played Marble Madness or, or any kind of physical style marble game when you were a kid and you kind of bent it around, it's the idea of having that. But the cool thing is like you, in, in real life, you would never be able to have two players competing against each other because you can't have two different competing gravities. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. But in a video game, there's absolutely no reason why you can't have your own gravity. I can't have my own gravity and the world can't have a separate gravity. So <laughs> the world you're playing on has a downward gravity. And then, you know, you as player one and me as player two, you can have a completely different gravity than I'm having. And everything that's your color is affected by your gravity and everything that's my color is affected by my gravity. And now suddenly we're trying to crush each other with gravity and cubes. Is it disorienting to look over and see your partner's screen? Just like keep your eyes on your own. I would, I would highly recommend trying not to do that at first. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. uh, It's the game can be very disorienting. The interesting thing with the leap and, you know, one of the reasons why we came up with this idea, we had a whole bunch of ideas. Um, but when we looked at the catalog of games that Leap had, they didn't have anything that was multiplayer. Um, and none of the games on there, in my opinion, were very revolutionary at all. They were all just, you know, there are games, there's a lot of, there's good games there, but uh, nothing that I would say is like kind of an art house game in any kind of way. So we thought this is great for us. We finally get a chance to do something that's 
like what we do. And we like to use new mediums like this to kind of make the experience more uh, a tighter experience, if you will. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you had this, you know, maze game that you'd hold in your hands as a child, and now you can hold your hand up in the air and play this maze game against somebody else and try to crush them is really kind of appealing. Okay. I'm looking forward to playing it. When the, is this out now? You can get it and everything? or So, yeah, it's out for the Leap Motion now for, for free. If you do play it, um, there's an intro video uh, before the video where you can kind of see Dan and I playing the game. I would pay a little bit of attention to that because it kind of shows you where you need to put your hand on the ground, like on the table. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we found out really early with the Leap Motion is that to play any kind of game is like almost absurd because um, holding your arm up in the air and not moving it very often uh, hurts like hell. If you do that for more than 10 minutes, it's like one of the most ungodly pains ever. And even just putting your elbow on the table and keeping your hand up is also kind of a strain on your body. So it was really interesting just kind of figure out good ergonomics to make a quick reaction game that you can kind of play in the air. Yeah, that's something you would have to think about that you probably wouldn't occur to you until you've played it for 20 hours while you're practicing. Yeesh, uh, after five minutes, you realize that your arm kills you. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons that we chose the game that we did, and the almost every design decision that we made, I would say, was completely based on what the natural feel would be for you interacting with this, this device as a non-gimmick. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting because this device lets you do so many things, but at the end of the day, the only way you can use it for more than five to ten minutes is to put your elbow on the table and put your finger out. Mm-hmm. This goes and into your interface first idea, I would think. Exactly, yeah. So if you've read that, I mean, that's it's one of my ways of doing game design. Mm-hmm. And um, this, this specific project is really, really uh, all about that. Okay. I want to but, talk about that concept then later, but continue uh, talking about the game. I want to hear more. Yeah, so the funny thing is, and you know, if you read the postmortem, you'll hear it. Um, we had a lot of, a lot of uh, I guess, negative feedback on the game when we first launched it. Because, first off, people didn't even know it was a two-player game, even though it had split screen and it said player one and player two Urk. on each screen and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of like a Joshua Bell situation where the audience just isn't the audience we were expecting. Maybe they uh, aren't that familiar with games. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they don't play a lot of two-player games. Maybe they were expecting it to be a web app. Um, you know, it, it's hard to know. But the one thing that we did know for sure is that teaching the game was kind of an issue. But the big issue was that no one knew how to position their hand on the table or how to hold it or how to interact with this device. So trying to teach how to interact with this device was extremely impossible. And, you know, as I said, you know, pay attention to the video. We put this video in there that's a very detailed video that's Dan and I playing the game and you can see us like side by side and how we're holding our hands and where the leap is positioned and uh, everyone skips it. Yeah, nobody pays attention when they have that thing at the beginning of the Wii where you put it on your wrist and you don't throw it through the screen. Everyone skips that. I mean, because that's optional, right? Like, it's okay if you throw it through the screen because you put that video in there that says you didn't do it. But, I mean, when you actually have to hold your hand up in the air or else the thing's not going to track properly, like, yes, it's unbelievable. Um, so we tested the game. Um, after launch, you know, we were getting this feedback. We're like, what the hell? Like, we thought we made this amazing, beautiful masterpiece of the game. And we were so proud of ourselves. And I think, like, you know, we had the postmortem and we congratulated the team for just, just such an amazing job. And... uh you know, it's kind of refreshing because we've been having a lot of problems with Duet uh, creatively. 
and this just fueled us so much. And then the next day, it's just like all these negative emails. And my favorite one so far is Shim Sham is a flim flam. <laughs> Thought that was like really clever. clever. And um, you know, it it was it was hard to take in. But then we spent a day and we got it working with controllers, and every single complaint uh, went away immediately. And um, we found out that it's just kind of you know, it's all about this interface and people not actually understanding how to interact with the, the interface. And by the time they actually got to the game, they would be so frustrated that they just had a negative outlook. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the creation of this game was trying to solve those kind of issues. Mm -hmm. um, that said, it will come out later at a different time, um, probably six months from now with controller support, maybe a single player. We'll see. Okay. Talking about your other games, uh, you mentioned uh, Pulse before, Auditorium, Fractal, Pulse, all very musical games, and interested in what the fascination with music as a theme kind of running through these games is. Um, it's not even a fact. I mean, Dane's definitely the dude to talk to for that, of, of course. I mean, he does all of our music and all of our sound effects in-house. Um, the cool thing about our games is everything is crafted by us. We don't do any outsourcing at all. It's done completely in the studio and up until this year it was just Dane and I um, so mostly a two man team maybe one or one other person in the office in the years but um, you know he really loves music and I really love art and design and one of the things when we first saw each other's portfolios what we immediately realized is that like we have these very similar skill sets but what we're kind of missing is this really amazing symbiotic relationship where you know the music helps the design and inspires it and vice versa. And that's kind of one of the things that's really important to us in the game. I mean, even in Shim Sham, um, it's a jazz soundtrack. It's our first time doing vocals. Um, our intern, Jackie, did all of the vocals for us. And, um, you know, when you, you know, kill the other person, it's like this crazy, like, trumpet. And it's like, and, you know, all the sound effects are, are trumpet sound effects. And it, it kind of feels like you're doing a live jazz ensemble. Hmm. And we just think that's one of the most important things, you know, that it's not just a visual experience. It's not just gameplay. It's the way all of these things kind of interplay and connect. I find it interesting that people tend to pay attention to music almost like it is a game companion with you, especially in these games, because just the little sounds make a big difference. They almost teach you how to play the game. No one really pays attention to the art style. People just, of course it looks that way. You know, art art doesn't quite get the same reaction necessarily that music does in, in its accolades, because I, I guess it's just not as, it's more expected, maybe. Yeah, I mean, no one cares. That's fine. <laughs> I think they care. I think they just have expectations that it will. I mean, it's it's also true for audio, I think. I think both of them are just really... The thing is, when it's really, really good, you don't notice. That, that And that's kind of, you know, the good and bad about it. You know, if your music is really, really amazing, um, you don't really notice it. You, you, don't, you don't go like, oh, wow, this music's the most amazing thing ever because you're playing a game and what happens is when that music is really, really good and those sound effects are really, really good, they draw you into the experience. They don't, uh, they don't make you focus on the music because you don't want the music to overplay the game. You want to not be a companion of the game, but you want it to really, um, you know, basically get you in there and 
just make everything more impactful. And the same with the visual design, you know, the way something explodes or the way something shines, it shouldn't be distracting. It should really enhance the whole mood or the feeling of whatever action is you're doing. So the problem is the better design is and the better the music, uh, the less people notice it, I think. Mm-hmm. That's true, although the feel of it, you know, I find myself looking back, I know you're a fan of Kelly Santiago, I am too, and especially Austin Wintry. I'm like an Austin Wintry freak. So, you know, I'll play Journey and I'll look back and I'll go, oh, I love the way I felt when I played that game. What can I do to recreate that when I'm not playing it? And for me, that's always like the score. Like, I was always go back and like... It's so true. That. There's yeah. something about music, I'll tell you. I mean, it, I, as much as uh, I can't make music, I adore music and I listen to music 24 hours a day. And it's weird. Sometimes I ask people like what kind of music they like and what they listen to today. And they're like, oh, I didn't listen to anything today. And I just think that's absurd. I mean, I come home and if I don't have music on at all times, that would be like a really strange thing for me. And there are people who just live their life without ever listening to music, which is just... <laughs> That's very strange. I agree. Like, there's a there's a theme song That's for everything. Inherently strange. I, you know, I went for a couple years without having a computer at my house, um, but there was not a single day in my life that I didn't have a boombox. Um, so that's strange. You know, I even when I do my motorcycle trips, you know, the thing I bring with me is music. Mm. I, you know, it's tent, motorcycle, and music. Like, what else do you need? <laughs> now, I've read about your your motorcycle love, and I also understand that you're a juggler. Now, this weekend I went to the Renaissance Fair and Paolo was there. He juggled things that were on fire. Can you juggle things that are on fire? Yeah, everyone asks that. I don't know why it's <laughs> impressive to people. Um, yeah, I can absolutely juggle things that are on fire. Um, it is not even remotely an issue. Um, for some reason, people love that. They think it's so <laughs> impressive. Um, it's really, I don't know, whatever. But yeah. <laughs> Because it's on fire. Because it's on fire. It's like, yes, there's fire. fire. You know, like, yeah, I can breathe fire. I can do all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting hobbies. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, it was one of those things that I tried when I was young, and it defeated me in just such an absolute way. And uh, right around when I was graduating college, I was working on my portfolio, and I had a lot of a lot of time that I need to think about things or wait for code to compile. And uh, yeah, I had some tennis balls in my apartment, and I just kind of bunkered down and was like, I'm going to learn this thing. And I learned it brute force the hard way. And uh, then I realized it was actually really easy to learn how to juggle and that you could teach anybody how to juggle in like 20 minutes. And uh, I was really pissed off at myself for not learning it the easy way. But hmm. okay. that's years later now. <laughs> now you will go and teach all the youth how to juggle quickly from your experience. I, I do actually. I go to the uh, Philadelphia Jugglers Association every Monday, um, which is down at Boathouse Row behind the uh, Bar Museum, and I juggle and try to teach anybody new who comes. <laughs> that's, that's great. You are really excited about the concept of teaching. That's, that's good. No, I think it's super cool. I mean, you get a lot out of it. You, it reinforces everything you know. Um, and you normally learn a lot of things that you didn't already know. And half the time they're teaching you things, so that's cool too. Pausing to go back to the music for a second. It's been suggested that these games, Auditorium, Fractal Pulse, are almost like acts in a score. They can be played together back to back, and it's it's almost like one, I guess, like a play, different acts in it. What do you think about that? Um, I would say that's true. Um and, and one of the reasons that's true, and it's not a negative thing, but uh, Dane does not get a lot of time to work on music. 
Um, the poor guy, he, he gets run ragged. I mean, myself as well. But when it comes to music, a lot of the music in the games is done um, extremely quickly. And it's not that we don't want to give more time for music. It's that Dane is also, you know, one of our best programmers. You know, him and I are doing, uh, the, you know, the core amount of game development. And, you know, it's hard when your your best developer uh, is also your audio guy. And it's also a music game. But what ends up happening is that it's, it just requires a lot more time to make the game. So inevitably, Dane will get like two weeks to make a, a you know, a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So kind of what happens here is, you know, we have these four or five games, but what they really are is the culmination of like six weeks of pure music development. I see. So, so I mean, if you think of it like that and you think about like how much he's growing as a musician, uh, he does do stuff in his own time, in his own style, but what's really happening here is it's kind of like, you know, Minding the gap, the months of time in there is that, you know, it's kind of like this piece is an extension of this other piece because it's pretty much the last thing I could post. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, influence definitely. Okay. Yeah, and and then you know for the art stuff, you know, I I kind of follow suit with that as well. I try to keep everything, you know, while my own personal art and design style is very different, um, and I have a lot of different styles that I do for Cipher Prime, it's kind of all try. I try to keep it all cohesive as well. So. Hmm. Splice is very different than these other games. It's more like lateral thinking, global thinking, and it seems like there's a creationist story happening here, obviously the Flight of Angels music and such. Why the change in, in moving from, you know, that that to to kind of a, a puzzle game? All right, so I'll explain this and there's a very good reason for why this game feels really different. Um so all of the games are basically my game design ideas from Origin except for Splice, which is dance. Ah. Uh, so what you're kind of seeing there with Splice is you're really seeing kind of uh, the difference in the way my mind works and the way Dane's works. So uh, while I did do all the game design on Splice, that very initial concept of the binary trees came from him. Um, in this sort of effort to, you know, he always comes up with these grandiose game ideas and we have never been able to make them because the visions are just too large. And, um, you know, I guess like I'm our project manager. So every time a game design idea or any ideas create, I'm like, oh, no, no, they can't do that. <laughs> no. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. So that was kind of his answer to me. It was like, well, here, I finally came up with this game idea that's tiny. And, uh, it will, it was kind of tiny when we first started out. Um, the original prototype, um, I designed it and he wrote it. And we did it in a plane ride from San Francisco to Philadelphia. And that was pretty much the game for the first three months. That was like the level editor and the game. And then it evolved into an eight-month game, and we came up with all these new, unique ideas along the way. Um, So it kind of became this thing. It was this thing that was really, really alien to the design process because it was nothing like anything I'd ever designed before. And then I spent the entirety of nine months making it feel like a Cypher Prime game. Um, so it's, it feels very different because at its core, it's a completely different. And the, the idea is from a completely different human being who thinks completely differently. Hmm. You can uh, 
read into this a lot. And Dane has said, and I'm going to quote from him, science and religion, in short, we want to integrate the feeling that you're touring in God's domain. And it's almost a, a blank enough slate that you can kind of impose upon it whatever <laughs> theological choices you might want to. Is this? Well, so yeah, the best part is that Dane and I both love religion, um, mm -hmm. but not to say we're religious. Um, we're not religious at all. Um, we just really love religion. It's just such an interesting thing. Um, so the whole idea is we wanted to kind of get that concept in there without actually being specific to any religion. Uh, so we tried our best to kind of hint at things uh, mm -hmm. throughout the game without kind of, without putting any sort of belief system in the game whatsoever because that's not what we wanted to do. Um, we wanted this idea that you were above just creating life, but not defining what that was. Okay, that's nice. You can let the user kind of fill in the blanks. Yeah, it was pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be hard to be very non-specific because the the instinct would be to just define things. I mean, if you can tell, it is very non-specific throughout the whole game, and we're trying to do that because we want it open-ended and we want it to be your experience and your ideas. And if you know, maybe. Maybe that bothers you. Maybe the fact that it has a religious undertone at all uh, bothers you. We wanted that to be something that if it wasn't something that you were even into, you probably wouldn't even notice it was there. Okay. I think the only reason that people maybe notice it's there is because of the titles of the songs. And if you research it. Yes. And that's only if you... But, I mean, it's, it's built into the game as well. Um, the last level of the game is an angel. And then if you complete a puzzle and you build a, you know, you, you overbuild a puzzle, it's uh, called an angelic. And everything is sets of seven throughout the whole entire game. Everything is sets of seven. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, it's there. And, um, but it's not, you know, abrasive in any kind of way. But, yeah, I mean, the, the easiest way to, to note the, the tonality at all would be to look at the track names. Let's go back to the idea of interface first. And I thought that was a really interesting article in a lot of ways. Basically, I took it almost like a physical interface, you know, like if you were going to use a gamepad or if you were going to use a touchscreen or whatever. But I think it is more basic than that in the sense that you were talking, you know, earlier about, um, I guess, Shim Sham. Can you explain to listeners like, what you mean about, like, how you begin to build a game just thinking about this concept? Well, yeah, so I have lots of different ways that I build games. Um, but... Uh, my my favorite one and one of my most successful ones is this idea of interface first. And, uh, you know, when I say interface, uh, you know, you're, you're right in kind of thinking. The, the interface, it could very well be a controller. It's basically uh, how whatever the user interacts with the inner loop. And the inner loop is something in a game that you would define as something that happens frequently and often and repeatedly. So, for instance, in Mario Brothers, running and jumping would be the inner loop, right? It's that thing you do every five seconds over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. But that gives you your feel to the game. It's really important. I mean, the way a character falls to the ground can change everything. Just like the buttons you use to do it changes everything. Um, and so you've, you've read the article. And in the, the article, well, what I did was Andre and I are making this personal game, and it involves swapping colors. And... Uh, it's a one-on-one -on -one game, and we had been talking about it that week, and 
he didn't really get what I was talking about. So I was like, well, why don't I just write a really quick article on different ideas for color swapping? And so that's what that interface article is about, is basically looking at the concept, the core mechanic of a game where your core mechanic is changing colors. And if you look through the lens of interfaces, how could that mechanic change just by changing the interface you interact with, not by changing anything else? And what happens is a lot of the times, you know, when you change the controller or the interface at all, everything else has to change as well. It makes absolute sense. I really liked when you were talking about Mario and like, essentially I was picturing it that uh, when you were explaining that if you're playing Mario on a Wii and you were Mario and you had to interact with Mario as, as Mario and you had to jump over things, if you jumped over things at the speed that you play the game, you know, with a controller, you would be, it would be heroic. You would just be exhausted after 10 minutes, you know, quickly jumping that way. But using your thumbs, obviously you have a quicker reaction speed and it's not physically tiring. So depending on what the game is built on, obviously a lot of that will change, you know, even just the basic moves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting when you think about these things. And the idea is not to, uh, you know, it's, it's not to actually trap yourself to using that device or whatever that interface is. It's that it really can inform your decision and kind of uh, sort of change everything and allow you to think clearer about everything. For instance, if you're talking about this jumping mechanic, you know, if you're using a digital input like a button on a controller, you might have a jump where you hold the button down. As longer longer you hold the button down, the higher you go in the air, right? Um, to do something like that, you're kind of using a repeat rate. So you're saying, like, I'm holding down the key every, like, 0.1 milliseconds, I'm going to increase the jump. And then maybe you're going to do it with linear interpretation, and you're kind of going to make use acceleration. So the longer you hold it, the faster that jump is applied, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not the way analog devices work at all. You know, if you're holding up on an analog stick, it's an input that's coming in from zero to one or zero to negative one, and you're kind of feeding that, and you're going to maybe have an equation, and you're going to pull that equation in at that that particular particular point in the analog movement. But if you took that digital input and the exact same programmatic method and then attached it on top of the analog input, you have this crazy new unique thing that really necessarily, that may or may not have been already created. And it allows you to look at this thing in a completely different way. And then if you have to suddenly jump with the connect, for instance, which is one of the things I mentioned, I mean, that's out of left field entirely. You know, you can't hold down anything. You know, one of the ways they do any sort of triggers in that game, in those type of games, is that, you know, you hold your hand up and you keep it in a certain area for a certain amount of seconds, and then it activates things. Um, so what if the only way to activate your jump is that an external force has to activate your jump? So you're not jumping at all. In fact, you're interacting with the world, and your character can only jump when you shoot a control panel to the left-hand side of the screen. It kind of creates these unique ideas that basically manifest themselves by just looking at one small thing in a lot of radical different ways. Mm -hmm. A Star Wars was like that. You had to use the Force by holding your hand a certain way and keeping it there, and then you could move things with your hand, and it it was kind of a pain, that mechanic, in some ways. It also makes me think a little more uh, kindly, perhaps, about ports, which is something that annoys me greatly. If, if I'm waiting for a game to come to the PC and it's been on a console for a long time and it takes a while for it to be converted into a format that's workable on a PC and, and I'm impatient, the concept of having to change it from the format of a controller and make it workable on a keyboard and the changes that that incurs are things that are kind of integral to the game that I just don't take it into consideration. Yeah, I mean, the port stuff is hard. I mean, uh, Pulse is probably one of our 
I think it's won more awards than any of our games, maybe even combined. Um, but it's for iPad and iPad only. And the reason was when it came out, iPad really was the best, you know, touch tablet at the time. And there wasn't really a good unified store to sell Android stuff. And who the hell can, who has like a thousand tablets that they can test on anyway? Like <laughs> that's, that's crazy. So, I mean, it came out on iPad and iPad only and everyone wanted a port for it. And we've never made a port because how can you? We just recently did the Android port and we'll be launching in a couple of weeks, but you know, the devices got up to par and that was fine. But, you know, there's no way that we can emulate the feeling of that game without the dual touch interface. It's just impossible. Do you think that will affect ShimSham? Because a lot of that is kind of built into the concept of having your hand a certain way and having controllers will change that. So it's interesting. So the, the, the version of ShimSham that's on the Leap Store right now uh, with the Leap Motion, it's, it, it drastically alters the experience. And your view of the game. Uh, and I, if you play Shim Sham on the Leap, it's a very art house game feel. Um, which is cool, because that's kind of what we're going for. We wanted you to feel a certain way. It wasn't, it was really important that the game made you feel a certain way. And it really achieves the feeling we were trying to go for. Now, when you take that exact same game and you play it on controllers with analog sticks, and we've rewritten the controls for the analog sticks, and we've also, added in an additional button to the game, which is a kick, it's suddenly, it's the exact same game, exact same code, exact same, exact same everything, but the inner loop is, is different, and it's it becomes this competitive powerhouse game. And people start yelling at each other and screaming at each other, whereas before in the Leap Motion, people were like, ooh, ah, oh, oh, that's really interesting. I really like that. And they're appreciating it in a, a slower way, and they're really enjoying it. But as soon as you add that kick mechanic and you add the analog sticks, it suddenly becomes this very competitive game. And that's not to say that the interfaces aren't as good as each other. You know, in the lead motion version, if you take your hand and your finger in the air and you move it really quick to the left, instead of just dragging it slowly, it kind of has like an acceleration. It has an acceleration to it. So it would be like the idea of flipping the camera really fast. And you could do that. So it takes your speed into account. So it is this very visceral thing. And you do have a lot of control over it. Uh, but once you add that familiar controller with really tight controls and a button that allows you to kick something across the screen, people just go, it, you know, completely changes the whole tonality of the game and the whole feeling. And it's, it is essentially the same game, but it's, it's not. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Hmm. Do you care? I mean, they're both we, very different experiences. We do care. We care a lot. I mean, for us, um, you know, it's the same reason we never, why we never ported Pulse. Um, it, it's not so much about the game as the feeling that the game brings on to you. Mm -hmm. The only thing that, the, the, the case about Shim Sham is, is special, though, because uh, we wanted that. We wanted both. We wanted it to be this art housey game, but we also wanted it to be very competitive. And it's interesting. We got the art housey game with the Leap, and then we got the competitive version with the controllers. We tried to do both together, and it didn't work. So we got it. We just got <laughs> to mesh them. Yeah. What is your favorite game that you've you've made at Cypher Prime, and why? Oh wow. Um, it's hard to say because uh, I have a stigma with the games where I, I kind of like to think of them based on the emotional pain they've caused me. <laughs> okay. What does that mean? 
Uh, you know, I'm well, I'm the person doing all the levels, right? You know, so for auditorium, for instance, you know, Dane and I were were dead broke. We had a huge pile of debt. We had no idea if making video games was even a viable thing. We didn't even know the IGF existed. We didn't know there were independent game developers. Um, it was just this thing we were doing because basically we're idiots. And, um, you know, so it caused a lot, a lot of emotional stress because I, my friends are having to make food for me and buy me food. And I'm staying up till five in the morning making levels for a game that I think no one's ever going to play. And I did that for eight months. So it, it paid a really high emotional toll on, on my body and my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I really do love auditorium. Um, my favorite game is actually a game called intake. Um, but we have never released it. Okay. It is, it, and the reason I, I think it's my favorite is because it was my first game design I ever came up with. We, about, you know, as I said, about this time last year, Auditorium Duet, the Kickstarter had finished. And we realized immediately that um, we want the game to be a lot bigger than we say it's going to be. We want it to be our, our you know, we, we want to win an IGF, basically. We want it to be the best game we've ever made. And we really do love Auditorium. It's it's the game. It's the very first game that Dayton and I made together, so it has a sentimental value. And we also think that it's the game that best describes that feeling of really tight audio and and uh, design pulled together. Um, but Intake was the first game I ever designed in college. And when we went to Duet, we needed another hand on deck. We found Aaron Chapin. Uh, he joined the team, but he didn't know Unity, so. The best way to teach immunity was to do a project that we already knew how to do the game design for. So I went into my bag of tricks and found the very first game that I ever made back in college. And that was the game we remade. And it was called Blue Blast Orange. And we just recreated it called Intake. And I guess it just has a sentimental value because it was this first thing that I ever made. And seeing it completely transformed into the art and musical style of Cyber Prime is just really kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. You would think the auditorium, as much as it would be a trial of fire, at that certain point when it's launched and it does well, the high that you would get, you would hope, would equal all the eight months of grueling work. I don't um, know. I mean, it was a magnificent time for us. Uh, so naive I was at the time. But, you know, it felt like when we launched auditorium that Dan and I were truly rock stars. I mean, we were in the smallest place in South Philly. It was 160 square foot. The two of us would hate each other when we backed up our chairs. We had no air conditioning and no heating. Um, but we got, you know, a million plays a week at one point in time. And it just seemed like this amazing thing. And I don't think we realized how lucky we were. So we didn't really get to appreciate it for, you know, how amazing it really was. And, uh, Things aren't like that anymore. They're nothing like that at all. You know, we release a game and we're happy and we're excited about it and we look at the numbers, but we've never received any kind of response like we received with Auditorium. Just people's feedback for it or just the fact that it just went so popular? People love that game. Really, really love it. I mean, uh, when you talk about money, it's not the game that's made us the most money by any means, but... People write back in auditorium and they say it changed their lives. And we recently just did a, an event on autism because uh, we found out through the children's hospital that auditorium was helping autistic children children rehabilitate. And it, 
you know, we we had we built analytics in the in the game, and we were finding out that people were leaving the game on for 15, 16 hours at a time. And you know, I happened to recognize one of the IPs because it was a friend of mine. I found out it was his mom, and his mom was leaving it on at night to listen to the music while she was going to sleep. Aww. And you know, we got a letter in the mail that was a golden star from a teacher for our kitchen. You know, mm-hmm. and we got lots of handwritten letters. We got chocolate. Um, you know, Disney is calling us up, asking us to make games for them. And EA is suddenly going to be our publisher for mobile. And we win a publishing contest for the PS3. And it was, it, it, I wish we had kind of um, just done nothing, just, just sat and vegetated and, and taken it all in. Uh, but instead we were running around with our heads chopped off and we didn't get to really fully appreciate and enjoy the moment. Mm-hmm. I think if we had really realized that that was never going to happen again and that there was never going to be a moment quite like that, we, we would have taken that time. But we were so caught up in it that we didn't even realize. I see. That's amazing, though, that you touched so many lives and people told you and you can look back and look at those emails or letters or whatever. It's it's really unbelievable. I mean, so, and yeah, there's definitely like a really soft spot in my heart for auditorium. Um, the problem is that... Uh, it caused me more pain than anything in my entire life. So it's like a auditorium is a very love hate scenario. <laughs> yeah. Double edged sword. Yeah. And I mean, it's also like our first time ever taking on a large game project. And if you've seen like indie game, the movie or anything like that, I mean, they're really those tales that they're telling in that movie. Um, they're not exaggerations. If anything, my, my problem with the movie is that they really underplay how hard it is. You know, they, 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 they try to make it look like it's hard and, and get to the point. But I don't think that it really hit how emotionally devastating that first game can be. Especially if you're like Dan and I and really didn't have the, the expertise to pull off your vision. You know, we had to gain it throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Speaking of visions and games like that, there's discussion in your musings about our game's art. And if you're talking about art... I definitely want to talk about the concept of uh, entitlement and things like that. But first, I guess I want to figure out if, you know, what is the responsibility of a game developer? What is the responsibility of an artist? Is there any that they have to to their audience or to people that are going to play their games? Or is it purely just done for their own, I guess, enjoyment? I mean, there's obviously a responsibility here for anybody who's a creator, in my opinion. I don't really like to use the word artist because the connotation is weird and the definition is strange and... You know, you can have a broad or a very narrow vision of what an artist is, which, you know, maybe your narrow vision is a painter and your broad vision is anyone who can do anything like smear shit on a toilet or something. (laughs) Um, I picture a black beret and some snapping, personally. Yeah, so, I mean, and everyone's definition is somewhere in the middle there, right? Um, So I I hate using that. I do like using the word creator because I I think that anything, anybody who brings something to the world, small or large, you know, calling them creators is really just. And I think if you are a creator, you know, there is just a little bit of, um, I should be thinking about what you're creating. Um, you know, we talk about how, how much I love Quake 3 and Quake 3 is essentially a first person shooter where you shoot each other with guns, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, if you noticed everything at Cypher Prime is family friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile in the office, we curse and yell all day <laughs> Sign long. language. 
and scream at each other, and we're terrible people to each other. We tell the worst <laughs> jokes. It's like dirty jokes all day, and not safe for work is like what our office is. And um, but at the same point, that's not what we want to contribute to the world. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we're fine with the joking around. Like we love joking around. We joke around all the time, and that's cool and it's fun. Like let's punch each other in the nuts on the Thursday night. But you know, when it when it comes to actually uh, presenting a face to the world and and actually giving something back and creating, I do think there, you know, there's a little bit of accountability there. I don't think it has to be all that large, like the Call of Duty stuff. Who cares? That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but yeah, a Treyarch's I, design director and getting death threats for like minor changes to gun speeds and and things of that nature. That's that's some serious dedication on the parts of the fans, but it kind of turned ugly in that sense of entitlement, you know, that. Yeah. I mean, that's like the whole feminist frequency thing, right? Like really, is that necessary? Like the woman has a lot of good points. It's yeah. You know, Anita Sarkeesian, how she was like, she's right. Like leave her, about leave, her. leave her alone. She's right. And, and even if she's not right and you don't believe she's right, like maybe, Maybe you could just take something away from it. There's no reason to be sending death threats to the girl. Like, and why are you criticizing the girl for wearing makeup in her videos? It makes her feel better. I would want to wear makeup. If, if it was socially acceptable for me to wear makeup, if I had an acne day, I don't think there'd be anything wrong with it. I would do it. Um, it would make your own video. People do that all the time. News anchors do it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not, I'm not really sure I understand the complaints from people at all. I think, you know, Entitlement, entitlement on the internet as a whole is just absolutely ridiculous. And it, I don't know. I, I think that if you are going to comment on what people are doing and what they're creating things, especially if you're another person who doesn't, who doesn't create, eh, maybe, you know, think about the things you're saying before you say them. Or maybe just how you're saying them. I don't even think it's important. If you want to shit talk somebody all day long, I think it's cool. Um, in fact, if you don't like what I'm doing, that's fine too. I don't care. I'd love to know what, what you don't like because at least I can think about that and maybe, maybe I'll cater to you next time because you actually voiced your opinion and it wasn't in a threatening way. Mm -hmm. If you pay money for a game, I understand that you want a certain experience that you've, you know, if it's been advertised a certain way, you expect that the game will live up to the advertisement, you know, and that there's a fine line between, hey, you know, game developer has you know, responsibility to live up to what they're saying their game is going to be versus, you know, okay, well, especially if it's free game and someone doesn't think that it lives up to a standard that someone, you know, would maybe put in if they were a AAA game or, you know, have the manpower to come out with something, you know, major. You can't really compare certain things. There's different genres and different, you know, levels of development that can be done, you know, depending on your funding and obviously teams and things like that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's entitlement. You were saying one of the reasons that we ended up getting together is that there was some negative feedback coming back and it seemed to be frustrating. Do you have like anything that, I guess, any thoughts on you know that? I'm assuming it's Shim Sham and people just not liking the interface. Yeah, it's it was the... There was lots of issues with uh, the game. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the timeline was crazy short and... We we didn't think of some things, you know. Um, having a new network, uh, you know, like the air, like airspaces, they have 
you know, a cert process you have to get through. And we didn't even think about the cert process. It was just the farthest thing from our minds. We're trying to figure out how to make this amazing, unique experience for this device and trying to figure out how to make your elbow sit on the table the right way without hitting the other person in the face. So <laughs> getting through certs, not even a thing we're even remotely thinking about. You need this game in three weeks. And the day after those three weeks is the day they're launching this store. And they're going to push this thing out to 80,000 people and they're going to get the game for free. And, you know, we kind of just assumed that since they came to us personally and that they contacted us, that whatever we made, they were going to put in there, assuming that we're making something of a certain value, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which we did. We really care about what we're doing, and we made the game free because we wanted more people to experience it. We already, you know, we thought about it, and we're like, well, Leap Motion, you know, how many people have Leap Motion already? We don't want to charge for our game. Like, we want people to, to really enjoy and get the chance to try this experience, regardless of money regardless of how easy or not easy it is to navigate the store. So what happened was they're in California. We're here. We make the game. We're finished after the three weeks. Um, but they're not there right now. They're asleep. And then when they finally do get in the office, um, then we find out we have to go through cert. And then when they finally do give us feedback, it's a day later at 8 o'clock at night, uh, which, you know, it's no fault on them. Um, I'm not pointing fingers. I mean, this is definitely our mistake, right? We didn't we didn't have the vision here. So now it's day, you know, it's it's a day over the the three weeks or two days over the three weeks, and this thing is going to go live, and there's not a damn thing we can do about it. And we're instead of fixing the little minor bugs that we wanted to fix with the game, now we're fixing bugs that are alt tabbing in and out of the window which who the hell does anyway and if you do that and the game kind of screws up like that's not something that would be unusual for v.1 of a game um so to us that wasn't really like those those kind of bugs weren't that important but the way the inner loop felt was really important uh meanwhile they couldn't see that so we spent all of our time those next two days day and night day and i were working we slept two hours a night for the last week of development. Um, so, and we worked seven days a week for the whole three weeks, the whole entire team. And one of the reasons why we were only getting two hours a night is because of that feedback loop and then the time and everything for which it was coming back. And, you know, they want us to fix these bugs that don't matter at all, that, you know, only 1% of people are going to see. And we're trying to fix these things that are game crucial things that 99% of people are going to see. Mm -hmm. um, I still now, can't all tab out of Skyrim. Yeah, I mean, it happens. <laughs> FYI, right? world of gaming, alt yes. doesn't work ever. Yeah, so what ends up happening here is um, they tell us it's fine. We've got a couple days, so we're working on it. We've got everything fixed. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. So far, no one's downloaded it. Next thing we know, we come in. It's Monday, and we have 30,000 downloads since the night before, and we're like, what is going on? We're supposed to push a build a day, and they had put us in a lose no newsletter. They, they had done the push for the newsletter and hadn't told us. Oh. Uh, and um, a, a big issue was their software injects, like, some validation stuff uh, for the Leap Motion so that it can detect Leap Motion and do all that sort of stuff. And so 50% of people were getting virus warnings because our original app and .exes are getting injected, so they're coming up as viruses. So we're getting one-star ratings all over the place because our game is a virus and people are freaking out on us. And it's like, well, we know for a fact that the... Windows executable cannot be a virus because we built it from a Mac. You know, there's there's no Windows virus sitting around on our Mac that it got jumped onto Unity and, and thrown in there. That's 
right. you know, maybe that's possible, but I don't know in what world. Um, so we're pretty confident that there's nothing here. So we're trying to look into that. And meanwhile, people are, you know, insulting us and our families and everything we do. And, you know, the comments are like, you know, you should learn how to make games before taking on such, you know, things of this magnitude, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And by the time we got the game fix in for, you know, that the begin that menu that that fix that we'd done to kind of like really tighten up the menu interaction, the little finishing touches that we had noticed um, once we went through cert and had slept a full entire night. Um, the damage was kind of done, and people were really upset with us. Um, but the other problem was that the we realized initially that the game did need some instruction for people to understand uh, for that specific audience because of the style of the device. So the store was structured in a way that we had all that information on the store page. But when it went out to everyone in that newsletter, it just went out as the name of the game and with a download link. And it didn't bring them to that store page. Oh. So, you know, people were getting really pissed off that it was a two-player game because they just downloaded it, played it, and found out it was a two-player game. Um, but this is all, in my opinion, just really ridiculous because when we go back to it it's a free game (laughs) like chill out guys like it's a free game and we're updating it every single day for you on a brand new device this extremely experimental device the first run of this device that if you have you probably joined their kickstarter so you should be one of the people who is kind of like experimental you know Mm -hmm. you should know that some things are going to be a little stop and go to start yeah, that's a quick reaction, especially if you're updating every day. Hmm. <laughs> launches are ridiculous, and I, there's so many games that have just really bad launches and, you know, find their feet and recover next week. And, you know, you'll get bad press for a little while, and then it'll fade away, and everyone will love the game. It, it just seems like the way things work sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's weird, too, because I, I don't know if you've heard of Drop Chord, but it's on the, the platform as well. It's from Double Find. Mm-hmm. Double fine, and uh, you know, you go on double fine, and they have like their thing, and they've got an absolute perfect five star review rating system. I played the game; they don't have any instructions in the game anywhere. There's not a single <laughs> instruction, um, and everyone is just so angry that we have instructions. But they actually went paid until they went free, and I and I think that just has so much to do with it because when you when you buy something. And in the Double Fine scenario, people who were downloading that had already heard of Double Fine. Right. The fact of the matter is nobody knows who Cypher Prime is. Um, we're just such a small fish. You know, we don't have that kind of name behind us. And we did a silent launch. We didn't tell any of uh, our fans that we were doing something for this platform. It, it came up so quick, and we did it so quick. And, you know, we immediately stopped doing auditorium development to do this. And... We wanted to make sure everything was ironed out before we, we said anything. In fact, our official announcement just went live today. Um, so we just said a thing to our mailing list today that said we made this game. Um, so it, it was, you know, it was kind of a scenario where, like, you know, when you buy a game, you're kind of, you're kind of like vested in it a little bit. You're not going to talk as much trash because you just paid $1. And the thing is, when you talk trash after paying a dollar, you kind of have to admit that you were wrong. Huh. You would think it would be opposite. You know, you would think you would be grateful for something free and then be a little more uh, accepting of the fact that it may not be, you know, perfect. But then if you paid, you would expect perfection. That's interesting. No, I mean, it's it's a very well, like, documented psychological thing. Um, you know, it's, you know, you buy a Mercedes and Mercedes costs a lot of money. And you have a lot of pride in your Mercedes, but it breaks a lot. 
you don't tell everyone it breaks a lot. You tell everyone it's a Mercedes. And you are really less critical when it does break because when it's running, it's a Mercedes. Mm. And, you know, there's a brand associated with it and everything associated with it. You're like, yeah, I've got a Jag. Like, yeah, okay. It runs a little weird sometimes, but you have a Honda. (laughs) I see. You know? And the, you know, there's just this connotation that I paid a hundred thousand dollars for my vehicle and you paid $20,000 for your vehicle. And yeah, my, my hundred thousand dollar vehicle just broke, but you know, it takes specialty parts and it's made from only the finest crafts in the world. Um, so of course it's going to be a little bit more touchy. Um, and people will just make all these reasons up because they don't want to be $60,000 wrong in their investment. Hmm. So then that begs the question, everything seems to be going free to play lately. I wonder if that's going to be that's going to be more IR raised in that sense, if everything does go that direction. I mean it's it's pretty well documented that any game that's free gets a lot more criticism. Hmm. And, you know, another reason is that, you know, we're talking about the Joshua Bell thing and audience and how it's important and you know, if you download ShimSham, it's a platformer with crazy gravity physics, and it's a little art housey, and it's really experimental, and it's also competitive. If you don't like those things, and you were expecting a puzzle game, you are not going to like that game, even if you love video games. And if you're an entitled person, and you haven't vested money in it, and it's not going to hurt you for saying it's shit, you're going to say it's shit. That makes sense. It's, it's their own fault for not reading the description, but yes. But that's the thing, is that they end up taking it out on you because uh, they're upset that they clicked that download button and lost, I don't know, 30 seconds of time. Or- <laughs> right, right. Precious time. All right, on to a less controversial subject. Cool things that you put in your games that people might not know about. For example, uh, let's see. I know that you were talking about having the the seven sequences in in the splice thread, and apparently there's seven nodes in the Splice logo and 77 levels and cool things like that. Are there any other I tiny penises unto <laughs> No. Um, <laughs> Only really late at night when you're drinking. Only late at night when I'm really uh, bored. Um, no, I mean, the... I don't know if there's any... Like, we, we do put interesting things in the game. Um, one of my favorite things that we ever did is in Fractal. We have a whole cheat system in Fractal. And um, cheats in fractal. there's a lot of cheats in fractal. It's unbelievable. You can drop down, you, you kind of, you drop down like an invisible console. We had built a console for development. And what we did was when we built the game out, it was done in flash. We had it so you could still activate the console, but we just turned off the visualizer of it. So you couldn't see it, uh, but you could still hit the tilde key and bring the console down. And then you could type into it and execute commands. Hmm. Uh, we kind of got rid of that. And we made it a lot, lot simpler and, you know, you end up just typing stuff. Um, but, um, you know, Neil Sardoni uh, is this guy who's like just been this amazing fan for us over the years. And he's made, we've actually never made a trailer for any single one of our games up until ShimSham ever. Um, they're all fan made and he made all of them. And um, he's just been this really great supporter of us for a long time. So one of the cheats in Fractal was, was basically just a cheat where you typed in his name. And it was like just a little love letter to Aww. him that we wrote, like a funny little love letter. And then the whole entire game would explode. <laughs> and, um, you know, so like that was really cool. And it was one of these things that we, we put in the background, um, of the game. I, I don't know. I thought that was a really interesting, fun thing. Uh, the, you know, one of the other things that's kind of hidden in splice, for instance, um, the, 
Andre helped me quite a bit uh, on level design. So I would say he, made, he probably did 50%. I'm not even sure what the numbers are. Um, but him and I together did the level design for Splice because it was pretty massive projects. And we were just going back and forth on things, trying to figure out how to get people to learn this crazy thing uh, better. And what we decided was that we wanted to have like a pretty short game that was maybe a couple hours to get through, kind of like a movie. But then we wanted to have another game inside of it. So I don't know if you've played Splice to the end or not, or if you've got a chance to play it. But at the end of the game, it says game over. And when you click on the logo, it actually replays every level that you ever played in the game and how you beat it in reverse and flies through all the strands back to the original logo. Oh, wow. Uh, no, I've not beat it. But if you wait for it to end, the logo actually flips over. And when the logo flips over, if you click the logo, there's a whole other seven sequences that are completely unlocked that are basically all the levels that we challenge each other to in-house. Um, so everything that didn't make the cut that was like too hard. So there's a whole entire new game inside of Splice if if you beat it. Ooh. Uh, it's hard. Which is kind of, which is kind of interesting because... Uh, uh, the only complaint we really ever get from people on Splice is that it's too short. But um, they're just idiots, and they haven't figured out the puzzle. So <laughs> You always have to watch the end credits. Yeah, so I feel like if you know they're so good at puzzle games, they probably should have figured out that very simple puzzle that there's a whole other game in there. Um, so that's one of the cool things in Splice, too. All right, we're getting close to ending. I've kept you a while, but it's been great. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we close? I don't know. I no. I mean, I got nothing. I've got some talks coming up soon. If anyone's interested, I'm doing some stuff on community development of PAX. Oh, and, PAX Prime. Yeah, and writing and talking about some marketing at uh, a Boston Fig, and uh, yeah, that's about it, really. Okay. Well, thank you for being on. Uh, you can find William at Cipher Prime on Twitter or cipherprime.com, and uh, thank you for being on the show. Awesome. Yeah. You can, as usual, find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, at Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast, or on iTunes. And if you love this show and you want to hear more, you can contribute and donate to the show at Genesee.com. You can also see that's where I'm posting all of this with pretty pictures and links to basically every social media outlet that you'd like to see. If you want to watch this live stream, you can catch all of that there at Genesee.com. And on the right-hand corner, there are donation buttons. You can pick the amount you like. Um, make it up on your own or pick one of the predetermined amounts, however you want. But always uh, appreciative and always grateful. It's been great. I've actually had two or three donations in the last week, and I will name them next episode uh, from the Jerry Ellsworth episode. And it's wonderful that you guys are contributing and showing your love for the show so that I can keep the servers up and keep it running. So thank you for that. And I'll see you next week, month, <laughs> with a new episode. <laughs>